I'm an engineer by background, um, and that means I do a number of things. I work with materials that go into, into, into automotive, you know, the traditional stuff uh, that you would think of for engineers. But I also work with microscopy and imaging techniques that allow you to look at materials at high magnification. And so, you know, that is the, the skill set that I use to um, work on somewhat less conventional engineering topics of, of forces involved in, in stabbing, sharpness of weapons, and uh, looking at marks made by um, bladed edges on uh, bone in particular to try and understand how they were made and what implement made them. So that's the skill set that allowed me to be part of the team that worked on Richard III. So I, I, I just must start by saying that this is a multidisciplinary team that worked on the project, so it's not just my work that I'm talking about today. Um, Philippa Langley from the Richard III Society was really important in terms of initiating the project and uh, getting the City Council to engage with um, allowing us to dig in the car park. Richard Berkeley uh, was the archaeologist who led the dig with Matthew Morris. Uh, Kevin Shorer looked at uh, the genealogy, the, the, the family tree of Richard III. Um, some of the lovely images that I'm going to be presenting are the work of Carl Vivian, who um, filmed everything and took the, the images, the photographs. Chori King did the DNA analysis. Um, Jay Appleby is an osteologist, um, and she works on conventionally um, Bronze Age archaeology and, and digs like that, but um, worked on the Richard III project. It was myself from engineering, and Professor Guy Rutty, who is the East Midlands forensic, uh, chief forensic pathologist. Um, so he works on, on, on contemporary cases. So Richard III um, was born in 1452 in um, Fotheringay Castle in Northampton, um, here on the left. Um, he spent uh, some of his childhood in Middleham, uh, where he uh, lived with the Earl of Warwick um, and had um, very happy memories of, of being there. And he was often known as somebody who was uh, very um, keen about the north of England, and he had a leading role there. He was um, from the House of York, and he was played uh, by Laurence Olivier very famously in the play written by, Richard, written by William Shakespeare of, of Richard III, um, with um, some exaggeration, I think, in the portrayal of Richard III. So the, the dig started uh, in Leicester. This is Leicester in 2005, and um, this is before, if any of you know Leicester, this is before the High Cross shopping centre uh, was developed. Um, the... Um, area here um, is the area that is important because it was where the medieval town of Leicester was and you can see I've outlined that in red on this picture. So much of this site had already been developed. Um, there are certain areas where uh, the University of Leicester Archaeological Services had done site um, surveys before the development and they're coloured in the red here. Um, but this area in the top left quadrant was much less uh, investigated, and that's because um, it's, it's largely completely developed. So 
Um, this project was exciting for the colleagues from ULAS because it gave them the opportunity to look in an area where they'd never previously uh, been able to investigate. If we look at the medieval town, this is an artist's impression by Mike Card of what it would have looked like in 1450. Um, there are various areas on this that um, correlate to modern-day Leicester. So, for example, the shopping centre, the jewellery wall, um, the magazine gateway, which you will still see if you go the bus station and the clock tower and the, the, the home of the market. The bits that were important to Richard III um, were three areas. Um, the Blue Boar Inn, which is where he stayed with his army on the evening before the Battle of Bosworth. Now, he could have stayed um, at Leicester Castle, um, but it probably didn't have enough space there to cope with his retinue and his army of men, whereas the, the Blue Boar Inn was a coaching inn and it was regularly used to taking um, large numbers of people. Um, the site, the possible location of Greyfriars is, is shown here as well, as is the Bow Bridge. And Richard III rode in to Leicester um, on the 20th of August, 1485, uh, with, his, with his army. Um, they stayed at the Blue Boar Inn, and then the following day, um, they rode out over the Bow Bridge with the army um, to uh, Bosworth, which is about 20 miles outside of, Bos outside of Leicester. Um, and there is, a, there is a saying that um, if um, Richard III struck his heel, because he struck his heel on the Bow Bridge as he rode out, and there was a, 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 an old lady there at the time who said that if he struck his um, heel on the way out, he would strike his head on the way back. And um, one of the things we were interested in when we were looking at the injuries to the skeleton was whether or not there was any evidence that that had been the case. So he rode out to Bosworth. Um, the Battle of Bosworth was rather short battle in medieval terms. It was probably about two hours long. Um, Richard III would have been immediately identifiable on the battle site because he would have worn um, armour. He would have had um, a sallet, which is um, the hat that you can see just here. He would have had his crown on that and his standard bearer would have been riding alongside him. So he would have been readily identified. Um, the battle was short. It ended with um, Richard III coming off his horse in, in the mire um, and legend has it that he was surrounded by men at that point um, and he was, he was uh, kneeling as he was killed. After the battle, his remains were taken back to Leicester and put on public display outside the Church of Greyfriars. And the reason they were put on public display was because uh, in medieval times, it was really important that people saw that the king had actually been killed. You know, there was no News 24. You couldn't see it on Twitter. Um, you had to see that the king had been killed. And because the people of, Le of Leicester had seen him before he rode out to battle, he was put on public display. Um, he was then, after about five days, um, Henry was um, coming to take his remains down to London. And at that point, he was um, hastily buried by um, the Franciscans um, who um, put him into, into a grave and buried him. 
Now, um, the Richard III project, the first part of it was to identify the location of Greyfriars and to see whether or not they could find uh, the church. So this is a, a 1741 map of Leicester, which was drawn by Thomas Roberts. And um, you can see um, this um, rhomboidal area here, which is the location of Greyfriars on there. And it's, it's, it's well drawn. You can take that out. You can easily distinguish the shape. And um, you can see um, what it's depicting on this map is a garden um, with an orchard, um, with a central portion here, um, which had uh, a monument on it in the garden to say that this is the location of Richard III, buried underneath it. But there was a, a rumour uh, that was put around Leicester by probably some quite enterprising merchant, which said that um, Richard III's remains had actually been um, dug up and thrown into the River Saw. Um, and if you go to Leicester and the Ball Bridge, um, there's a plaque that says that the remains of Richard III were cast into the River Saw from this bridge. Um, and then there's a small plaque underneath which says this is now known not to be <laughs> the case. <laughs> um, so um, the, the, the site of Greyfriars, this map is sufficiently accurate that you can um, compare it to a modern day ordnance survey map here which shows the buildings in Leicester and you can superimpose the two and what you can see here is um, the white area in the middle of this map is the area that was available to the team to dig in and that was um, a small fraction of the site um, so the, the question is that, you know, you're looking for the Friary Church. How do you find it? Well, the first thing that was done was to uh, do a ground-penetrating radar search and survey of the site. And what you can see on this, this image here is, is green areas which correspond to um, indistinct rubble you know, sort of probably other developments that have taken place on the site. Um, probably, almost certainly, mostly modern. Um, there are lines in here which are coloured in red, um, and they are modern-day services, um, things like um, sewerage and uh, communications. And so one of the first things they did was they didn't want to dig across um, people's sewers. Um, they were given a very short period of time initially by the city council to dig on this site. And so um, the original aim was to um, excavate the site, work out where the location of the Friary Church was, and then cover it back. Um, and if they'd located the Friary Church to get permission for a second dig to go back at some point in the future and carry on um, the search. But they were looking for... Um, for, for the friary uh, of Greyfriars and um, the first thing they had to do was to try and, and decide how that was going to correlate with, with the site that they had available. So all Christian churches are oriented with the nave running in an east-west um, direction. So that gave them 
um, the option of putting in some trenches to try and identify um, those walls as part of the church. Um, what they did was they put in two trenches, um, trench one and trench two on this site to try and really scope out what the geography of the, the church would be. Um, they didn't know what Greyfriars in Leicester would look like, but this is um, Greyfriars Walsingham, and it was um, assumed that it would be fairly similar in terms of the layout of the church. So they put in the trenches, trench one and trench two. Um, this is the, the trench going in. Um, the digger was used to remove the tarmac and the very topmost layer of um, the site. You can see here Philippa Langley looking on to the trench with um, colleagues from the University of Leicester Archaeological Service. This is Matt Morris over here on the left. Um, if any of you go to Leicester and have a look at the museum, you can see Philippa's wellies are now on display in the, in, in the museum in Leicester. And they found some interesting things. This is the first um, part of the trench. Um, you can see some um, modern building footings at this point here. But as they continued to dig, they found a skeleton. Now, they were digging in a, in a churchyard. They were expecting to find skeletal remains. So at this point, this is a, a leg sticking into the trench, um, they covered it up and carried on with the dig. Um, as they continued, they found some um, evidence of medieval um, architecture. Um, they found a, a silver penny. And so this is starting to give them uh, some confidence that they're digging in the right place. There is a wall line that runs across the trench here, um, with some evidence of floor and impressions of tiles. This would have been a tiled area in, in medieval times. Um, this turns out to be a bench, and you can see here the, the nose on the bench. So this is starting to look like it might be part of a church, the church. This is trench two going in, and um, when they excavated this trench, they found... Um, walls that were running in a north-south orientation. So this started to allow them to understand um, more about the church. This is a doorway. Uh, this is some more tile area with tiles impressions and a step in trench two. And so what they've done here is they've sketched on the possible geometry of Greyfriars um, in relationship to the trench. And you can see that we can label this up um, and what they think that they found in the top of trench one was um, part of the choir. Now the choir is important because that's where uh, people of significance, people of importance were build, buried in the choir. Um, it was not accessible to the general public. It was only where the friars were allowed to go um, so this is people of high status that were buried in this area of the church. So at this point, they went back to the Ministry uh, of Justice and asked for permission to exhume the skeleton um, because 
the, where the leg had been sticking into trench worm indicated that this was likely somebody of high stature, high status, and um, therefore this skeleton uh, was interesting to, to, to the team. They found some other skeletons in the church as well, and they're coloured in, in green on this picture. So how do you identify a king? How do you know if you've found Richard III? Um, so these are some accounts of Richard III from John Rouse and Nicholas uh, von Poplu. Um, he was of small stature with a short face, unequal shoulders, uh, the right higher and the left lower. Um, and then King Richard is a high-born prince, uh, three fingers taller than I, um, and as an engineer, um, you need some scale. So you need to know how big I is at this point. Uh, and I think when you're writing your memoirs, um, this is something to bear in mind, <laughs> that you need, you need absolutes. Because 500 years later, somebody who doesn't know you is trying to work out how tall you are. But he was a bit slimmer, not as thick-set as I am, lightly built, quite slender arms and thighs, and also a great heart. So that's what we know about him from the records of the time. And this is uh, going back to look at skeleton one. This is Matthew Morris uh, taking the protection from the skeleton. Um, they had to widen out the trench at this point. Um, you can see Carl Vivian here filming it and uh, Philippa with a Channel 4 documentary team who um, provided some of the funding for the project. And this is Joe in the bottom of a trench in um, the modern CSI gear because what you didn't want to do was to contaminate the skeleton with modern DNA. Um, Joe said that you know, one of the things that she worried about in the project was that they did the DNA analysis and they proved it was Joe Appleby. <laughs> so this is Joe um, with the skull at this point. And um, this is... Uh, the, the skeleton laying in the trench. And there's a few things that are immediately apparent. So the feet are missing, um, and we think that that's modern-day buildings on this site that had dug over the location of the feet. Um, you can see the hands are, are crossed, which is very unusual. It probably, most probably indicates that they were tied at the point at which the skeleton was put into the trench, because normally you know, people would be laid with their arms crossed or, or by their side. Um, you can see there's an obvious curvature of the spine um, and interestingly the head is above the main level of the um, skeleton. So we think that what happened was that the um, body was put into the trench head first, uh, feet first sorry, and at the end they couldn't quite fit him in so they had to prop his head on his chest. Um, so, so slightly unusual but... Um, indications of, 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 of scoliosis, potentially. So this was really exciting at this point because um, you have a skeleton here. There was evidence of injuries to the skull and um, with um, this pronounced curvature. So the first thing that they did with the remains once they got them out and, and cleaned them up was they did radiocarbon dating to see if the skeleton was of the right age. The first analysis of the carbon dating came back with um, 
a confidence level of 95.4% probability that it was from between 1430 and 1460, um, which would mean that it was before Richard III died in 1485. However, um, they also did an isotope analysis on the bones, which showed evidence of a diet with um, high marine content and high meat content. And that then leads you to have to apply a correction to the carbon dating data. And uh, that correction gave 95.4% probability it was age between 1455 and 1460 AD. So that gave us the right window. And you can narrow that down even further because we know that um, Greyfriars went when Henry VIII came in and dissolved the monasteries in 1538. So that gave us a, a, a very high confidence that it was within the window 1450 to 1540. So the skeletons of the right age. Um, this is the skeleton after it had been taken out of the trench and cleaned up. So if you remember back to the Laurence Olivier portrayal of Richard III, um, Macbeth, uh, sorry, with um, Shakespeare and the withered arm, and you can see here that the arms are not dissimilar from left to right. So there's no skeletal evidence that he had a withered arm. Um, there's also in the film the outrageous limp that uh, Olivier has. And um, again, the leg bones on both sides are equal. So there's no skeletal evidence that this is somebody that walked with a limp. Um, there is a curvature of the spine. And um, when you lay the spine out um, in detail, you can see it's quite severe. Um, and this is two bones that have been opened out like a book, right? So you can see the vertebra here. Now, in somebody who doesn't have scoliosis, um, you bear weight equally down both sides of your spine, and the spine is symmetrical about the middle of these two bones. And you can see here that there's pronounced thickening on, uh, on this side here and um, dis uh, dissolution of the bone here, so where it's thinned. So this is somebody who had a genuine scoliosis. It's probably what's called idiopathic adolescent onset scoliosis. Um, idiopathic means that the cause of it is unknown. And adolescent onset is that this is something that would have hit Richard the third when he got to puberty. So one of the techniques that we use uh, very commonly in engineering and in, in medicine is, is x-rays. X-rays were first produced uh, in 1895 by Wilhelm Röntgen and you can see here uh, one of the first x-rays that he took was of his wife's hand and you can see her, her wedding ring here. Now with X-ray CT, it's widely used because it gives you non-destructive imaging. Um, it's used extensively in medicine airport security. And the image brightness is based on something called the Hounsfield number, which allows you to distinguish between you know, bones and your flesh. And I'm sure if I asked you to put your hands up, many of you here would have had an X-ray sometime in your lifetime. You may also have had a clinical X-ray CT. Now, clinical X-ray CT works in the same way. You have uh, an X-ray source, 
um, which is here. You um, lay on a table, which is fed through the scanner. The detector is on the other side and um, rotates around to take x-rays of the area of interest. You take multiple x-rays and you use software to reconstruct them to get a 3D picture of um, the, the body. Now, because this distance here is fixed, um, you have a fixed resolution, a fixed magnification. You can improve the, uh, the resolution a bit by increasing the voltage on the x-rays, um, but you can't do that with live patients, so the resolution is, is, is fairly fixed. Actually, one of the, the advantages of, of the, looking at skeletons, skeletal remains, is you can actually increase uh, the voltage a bit and have um, better resolution. But it's, it's, it's limited in terms of the resolution that you can have. So we also use something called microcomputed tomography, which is an engineering technique. This is the same thing. You have an X-ray source and an X-ray detector, and you have a sample. But instead of the detector and source rotating around, you rotate the sample. And because we can move the sample between the source and the detector plate, uh, we can get better magnification, we can get better resolution than you can get with medical CT. So both of these techniques were used in the project. This is Joe Appleby laying out uh, the bones on the CT scanner. Um, you can see um, that they were laid out um, and different parts were scanned at different times. This was done about Christmas, as you can see uh, from the glitter. Um, and this is the imaging that, that Guy Rutty and his team um, got of the remains of Richard III, as it turned out to be. But at the time, it was just a skeleton. Now, from these scans and uh, from the data that you get with these scans, you can tell a number of things. Um, by examination of the bones, we know that this is a Caucasian skeleton, uh, we know that it's male. Um, you can use a number of factors in the scanning to tell that uh, this is a skeleton that's uh, of the age range 32 to 35 years. So Richard III was just short of his 33rd birthday when he was killed at the Battle of Bosworth. So the skeleton is of the right uh, ethnicity, the right age to be uh, Richard III. And you can take uh, the femur and by accurately measuring the length of the femur you can tell that this is somebody who would have been five foot eight inches tall. Now when you took into account the scoliosis they would have actually been appeared a bit shorter than that probably about four inches shorter than that. Now five foot eight for a medieval skeleton is tall. This is somebody of the age who was tall but his brother Edward IV was six foot two so he was shorter than his brother. Um, this is the skull on the microcomputer tomography equipment in engineering. Um, we had to scan it in three separate parts. The front of the face was loose um, and the jaw was loose. And so we scanned each of the bones separately to allow us to look after the, uh, the, the, the skull and uh, all of the remains with, with great care. Um, you really didn't want to be the person that dropped um, this skull. 
And then, just in terms of the injuries, this is um, from a book of field surgery. It's a 1517 book of field surgery, and this tells you what sort of trauma a surgeon on a medieval battlefield would expect to see. And you can see um, that it's a mixture of sharp force injuries from blades uh, penetrating, um, blades slicing. Um, you can see that you would have expected um, possibly blunt force trauma from things like cannonballs or cudgels. Um, but hopefully, um, unless you were having a really bad day, you wouldn't uh, get all of this at once. So this is um, the skull. This is um, the micro-CT imaging that we, we got of the skull. And you can see the incredible detail that you get here. So you take lots and lots of radiographs. Um, we took one radiograph every point one of a degree as we turned the skull on the scanner. Um, so scanning around 360 degrees, that gives you 3,600 radiographs that make up these images here. Um, you can see the detail um, on the inside of the skull where uh, the veins run across the top of your, your brain and compress against your skull, and you see that detail in here. Um, this is the view you would get if you took your head off and put it down like that. A is where your spine goes into, into your skull. Um, C is a big injury that would have been on the right-hand side of the skull, and B is an injury that's on the left-hand side of the skull here. We think C was most likely caused by a halberd. A halberd is a, a big, um, essentially axe-like weapon with a spike and something called a fluke. Um, and the fluke is um, used for um, people who were foot soldiers could swing it onto people who were mounted on horses with armour, catch on the armour and pull them off their horses. Um, the spikes were used, they would um, stand in a ranked row with the spikes oriented towards people who were running on towards them. And so that would um, cause injury in that way. And um, the axe side of it is a slicing weapon. So we think that injury was caused by something like this. A substantial piece of, of the brain would have been exposed. This injury would have been fatal, but not immediately fatal, um, maybe depending on how much brain was exposed at the time of the injury. The injury on the left-hand side, uh, the one that's marked B here, we think was probably caused by a long dagger or short sword. At the time, uh, there was a late medieval period, um, long daggers and short swords ran into each other in terms of um, their weapon. But this injury went all the way through the skull. And you can see on the inside of the skull at the top here. So it's gone on right through the brain and onto the inside of the skull. So that injury would have been immediately unconscious and then very quickly dead sometime after. So it's, it's, it's not like on the television where people die instantly um, when they're shot. Um, and it's the, um, but it's, it's more that the breathing stops, the circulation stops, and that takes a little time. Um, but both of these injuries were capable of killing him. This is a, a photograph of the 
top of the skull, and um, you can see um, a wound here, um, and that's square-based. So we think that was caused by um, something called a rondel dagger. So they have a, a square cross-section, and they would have been used in the way that's shown here, where um, either on the top of the head somebody hits the pommel, um, or from a horse where somebody hits the pommel into the head. Now, we know this injury um, was not likely to be the one that killed him because when, again, you do the X-ray imaging, you can see bone flap on the inside of the skull. What we don't know is whether this is bone that's been pushed down and through or whether it's dirt because, unfortunately, the Hounsfield numbers of those two are very similar, so we can't tell from the X-ray contrast. But we know this injury wasn't one that would have been fatal. There were some other injuries to the top of the skull, and you can see uh, here we've got three areas that I've outlined where um, you've got a sh very shallow uh, injury to the top of the skull. And they have small, what we call striations in them. So those are lines that are led, left by defects on the edge of the blade, either from use or from grinding. They would have all been ground sharp um, the, the night before the battle. Um, and what you can do is here, if I just go back a little bit. So we've got two injuries, one here and one over on the right-hand side. And you can get those images, magnify them to be at the same magnification. And what we can see is that the striation patterns on those injuries are the same. So we can see here one injury in the background and the other one that's superimposed and you should be able to see as you look across here that those marks run from one to the other and they match um, and this was really exciting for, for me because um, it's the first uh, evidence that we've had of what's called a double tap or, or a triple tap in this case made with the same weapon um, and the fact that we could see this with this detail on a skeleton that was 500 years old was just, you know, really exciting. There's some other injuries um, to the front of the skull. Um, there's one here that you can see just um, below the nose. That's what's called an in and out injury. So it went in here and, and just out through um, the, the, the nose area. And there are some other injuries to the base of the jaw. So there's, there's one here and one here. Um, and we think um, he would have been wearing a sallet with a, a leather strap to hold it on. And we think that's where his leather strap was cut through to remove his helmet. It's consistent with having been made by a sharp implement. So just so that you can see all of the injuries together. Um, this is all of our x-ray images reconstructed to give you a 3D visualization of how it would have aligned. You can see um, the injury to the top of the head here and the large injuries to the base of the skull. We'll flip this over in just a minute. You can see the scalloped injury there. 
The, the, the big injury here um, was caused, unfortunately, during the dig because it was unexpected that the head was going to be above the rest of the skeleton. And you can see those injuries to the base of the skull as it just spins round. Okay. There was um, two more injuries. There was an injury to um, the 10th rib, the back of the rib. You can see there's um, a V-shaped injury there caused by um, a knife. And then this is um, a fracture that's caused to the rib as a result of that. Um, there was an injury to the pelvis. You can see across here where that injury runs. Now, it's possible that that could have been caused on the battlefield. But the angle for that injury is wrong. Um, it couldn't have been caused in the way that's depicted in this medieval picture here. Um, and what we think happened was that after the battle, he was slung over the back of a horse, and that would give you the angle that was needed to create this. And we think this is the one injury that was most probably after he died post-mortem. Um, inflicted as an insult after the battle. So how do we know it's Richard III? Well, so far we've got a skeleton from the right era um, from, uh, that's male, that has evidence of battle wounds, um, that has scoliosis, that was found in the Friary Church in an area of the church for people of high status. Um, but what we really wanted was um, some DNA evidence. Now, Richard III, um, the male line of descent became extinct in 1499. And so there were no male relatives of Richard III. Richard III's wife and his son predeceased him. So there were no descendants, direct descendants of Richard III that we could look for. But what you can do is you can use mitochondrial DNA. Now, mitochondrial DNA is passed from mother to, um, a mother to her um, offspring, both male and female. But when it's passed down the female line, it stays constant. It doesn't change. So I have the same DNA as my mum, as my grandma, etc., etc. The way in which we could do this for Richard III, therefore, was to look at uh, lines of descent through his sisters. Um, and um, there was some work that had been done uh, by John Ashton Hill of the Richard III Society that was um, further confirmed by um, Kevin Shura at Leicester. And what he was able to do was, from Anne of York, track through all of her... Uh, female line to Michael Ibsen. Um, now, this is Michael Ibsen here with Chori King, and he's doing a, a DNA swab. And um, we also found uh, a second lineage to a lady called Wendy Duldig. Um, so um, 
the first thing to do was to type the modern-day relatives of Richard III. That's relatively straightforward, um, and Chori's shown here doing that. But what she also did was, uh, using one of the back teeth, was to um, extract some of the DNA from the skeleton and um, track back through that um, to, to look at the DNA. Now, DNA is, um, we're all made of, of DNA. Um, it's made of nucleotides of um, different nucleotides, which are given the abbreviation C, A, G, and T. And this is Michael Ibsen's DNA. So you can see in this sequence here that Chori is used, we've got C, A, A, C, A, A, et cetera, et cetera, running across. This is the second lineage, Wendy Doldig. And you can see if you trace down that they exactly match. So um, we're confident that the DNA of these two individuals is the same. This is our Greyfriars skeleton. And you can see if you track down, it exactly matches. Now, this trace isn't quite as, as strong as some of the modern DNA because it's really challenging to get the 500-year-old the, the, the DNA. But you can see that they exactly match. So we've got a skeleton from the church with battle injuries of the right age, of the um, right era um, with matching DNA. And at this point, this is where we confirmed that we had, in fact, found the remains of Richard III. So afterwards, um, we um, obviously did all the research that um, we could with the remains. Um, and then the, the, the remains were reinterred in, in Leicester. This is the coffin use, leaving the university. Um, and the reinterment was at St. Martin's Cathedral in Leicester. And I just wanted to show you this because there was, there was lots of debate about whether or not the remains should be reinterred in Leicester or in York. Now, normal archaeological practice is to reinter the remains as close as possible to where they're ex exhumed. Um, this is the King Richard III Visitor Centre in Leicester, which is now built over the site of the car park where Richard III's remains were found. And this is Leicester Cathedral. Um, so you can see that they're about 100 yards apart. And it, you know, for me, it seems right that the, 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 the remains that we have in terms of the bones are reinterred so close to the decayed remains of Richard III. So this is uh, the ceremony in the cathedral. Um, and this is the tombstone uh, in the cathedral. If you ever get a chance to go to Leicester, the thing to do is to stand at the end of the tomb. And um, what you see is that the, the, the carvings here um, cast the shadow of a sword in the centre 
uh, of the two. And, and yeah, just amazing. Lovely project to be a part of. And if you want to find out anything else, um, there's loads of information that's freely available on the university's website. Thank you very much. why, from the early part of the lecture, when Richard was killed, why the Franciscan friars wanted to hide away his body rather than have it taken back to London? It seemed that London would be the obvious place. Okay, so um, when um, his um, father and his brother were killed in an earlier Battle of the Roses, um, what they did was they um, took their heads off and they put them on spikes outside um, York. And I think that the Franciscans felt that they wanted to, to bury the skeleton um, with the appropriate ceremony rather than see um, that happening again. Apart from the, um, the wound that you said was inflicted or thought to be inflicted after he had died, uh, is it possible or did you speculate about the order in which the other wounds were inflicted? Okay, so um, you cannot tell which order from... So, so, so the first thing is, there were no wounds from previous battles, so there were no healed wounds that we saw. So that's why we said that all the wounds were perimortem, so at or close to the point of death. You can't tell the order in which they were inflicted. Um, you, can, you can posit that if this large injury here had led to death, that this injury to um, the, the left-hand side would not have been necessary, the one that ran in and ran right through the skull. So you can, you can posit that this was first and this was second, but there's no other way of telling. The interesting thing is there were nine injuries to the skull, which sounds a lot, um, but from earlier skeleton so that were found from the Battle of Toton, uh, an earlier Wars of the Roses battle. Um, the average number of injuries to the, to the skulls there was 25. So um, actually he was quite unscathed. And we think, again, that's related to the fact that they had to put him on display. They had to show that they had killed the king so that they didn't get any usurpers to the throne. Um, so the, there's only the one really injury to his face that goes in through the cheek and out, um, and the rest of his face is very much intact. Um, so it's, it's interesting that whether or not there was that degree of control or whether that was just how it happened, we don't know. Your, your question actually was one that six other people online wanted to know <laughs> the answer to, so thank you very much, sir. Um, uh, another six people online want to know whether there were other human remains found or whether there were just those of, of King Richard. Uh, so, yes, there were some other skeletons that were found. And um, if you want to find out more about those, if you go to the um, Leicester website with the Richard III um, uh, tag, then you will find the details of those. The other skeletons that were found, we weren't able to trace... Um, who they belong to, um, and that's perhaps why um, there is less about them. But there is more on the Leicester website if you would like to find that out. Um, and another one from online here, um, which is a question about his teeth. Uh, did he lose his teeth during the battle, or were they um, caused by eating too many Mars bars? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
It's quite interesting because medieval dentistry, there weren't... Um, there wasn't good dental hygiene, and actually he's got um, a reasonably good set of teeth. You know, there's a lot of teeth that are still there. So um, there is evidence of dental caries, um, but he would not have had a diet that was high in sweet things. Um, probably you can think of natural products like honey and things like that. But his teeth, you know, looked to be in reasonably good condition, and they were... They were well fixed into the skull. I noticed on the skeletal, when you were laying out the skeleton, uh, one of the legs was laid out a little bit longer than the other. Is, you said there was no sort of structural reason for a limp, but do you think, it does, would the scoliosis have led to that with the thickening of the one side of the uh, pelvis and the way it was let out? Okay, so out? The, there is evidence that the end of... Um, the um, fibula and tibia are shortened, probably at the same time that he um, lost his feet. Um, so at the point at which they excavated the cellar or whatever went in on that site, um, the feet bones, the, 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 the metatarsals, the tarsals in your feet are very small. So they would have just appeared like building rubble and would have been lost. So we don't think that there's any evidence of the limb from from the skeleton um, or from any imbalance in terms of the leg bones. It's just that's what was left for us to investigate. Um, I have scoliosis and, um, and I have got a slight limp because one of my legs is sort of substantially shorter than the other. So I do assume that it's part and parcel that if, you have, if you're scoliotic, um, part and parcel that one of your legs is sort of naturally imbalanced. I mean, I have to wear, obviously, an insole in one of the shoes just to align both my legs. So I'm guessing, you know, in those days, there was no such thing as uh, insoles or surgery or many things. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is, you know, people say, well, how could he have fought with that degree of scoliosis? But he would have had a suit of armour that was built for him that would have effectively um, braced him. And one of the modern treatments of scoliosis is actually to use a brace to align the scoliosis. So um, he would have fought as a, a knight from a, being a very young boy. He would have trained from the age of eight to, to be a knight. He would have been very used to wearing armour and the armour would have supported him. So he would have been very able to fight well. And all the accounts of the battle say that he fought bravely. Um, superstition is very unfashionable and certainly very unscientific. However, uh, considering the fact that you were completely dancing in the dark at the beginning, you didn't even know what the shape of Grey Friars was, and you put these two trenches down, has anyone done a mathematical calculation of the odds <laughs> of actually finding Richard III? Um, they haven't done a mathematical analysis of the odds of finding um, Richard III, but um, when the work on the DNA was published, um, they did do a statistical analysis of um, the probability that it was the remains of Richard III. So when you add together um, all of the different factors, it comes out at 99.9999% certain that it's the remains of Richard III. But clearly that element for conspiracy theories that it isn't <laughs> is left there. <laughs> Think about the chance of... Yeah. Yeah. So it was about um, when the 
car park was there, there was about 17% of the possible available site of Greyfriars was there to dig in. Um, so it was only a small fraction of the site that was excavated. They did get permission um, a year later to go back and um, dig out some more of the area. Um, you know, it, it, it's amazing. The leg bone was sticking into the trench by 50 centimetres, 50 centimetres to the other side, and we would not have found it. Um, but we would have found Greyfriars, and whether or not we'd have been able to go back and find him. Um, but there's some, there's some amazing things. You know, the, the, the car park belonged to um, social services, as, as is well known. Um, but it wasn't just social services, it was child protection services. <laughs> um, so, you know, the whole thing, when it comes together, it's just an amazing uh, project. And, there's a, uh, and, just... and the other thing is Michael Ibsen and Wendy Duldig are both the end of their lineage. So if we'd done this project, um, you know, 30, 40 years from now, um, there would have been no contemporary DNA to compare to. So it's, you know, the whole thing's just amazing. Yeah, good, great question. Thank you. <laughs> just to follow on from that, I went to a talk years ago now with um, John Ashdown Hill and Philippa Gregory. And they were saying that there was actually an X marks a spot uh, just where, I mean, that was one of the funny things yes. that they actually spoke about. I'm not, not quite sure whether it's actually true or whether they were making that up. Uh, no, no. So um, the car park, um, as all car parks, was laid out in bays, parking bays. Um, and um, roughly above the spot where uh, he was found, there was a car parking spot that had R for reserved on it. <laughs> Very good. The last question is an online one, which is a technical question about um, how you were able to tell the ethnicity of the skeleton. Um, so uh, ethnicity is something that anthropologists and um, uh, osteologists do all the time. Um, and it's a number of features that they look for. Um, so in particular, um, they use the shape of the skull. Um, so different ethnicities have different um, prominence of, say, for example, the eyebrows and the eye sockets and different prominences of, of, of the features of the skull. And that is what anthropologists use for determining ethnicity. Professor Hainsworth, thank you so much for a fascinating lecture. We all enjoyed it enormously. <laughs>